Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are... Approaching the end of the second round, the NBA playoff team with the best chance to reach the finals. Plus, a deep dive into each series from the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And... Can the LA Angels continue their dominance in the MLB? It's episode 72 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. What is up, everybody, here on Thursday, May 12, 2022, the 72nd edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. It is an absolute gorgeous day here in Swampscott, Massachusetts. It's going to reach 70 and then eventually 80. I mean, just something about the warm weather always puts me in a really good mood. And I definitely need it after last night, which we will get into a little bit because if you're from the city of Boston or you're a Boston fan, you know exactly what happened the previous night and why you might be upset. So we'll, as I said, we'll get into it later, but there's so much going on that we just got to get right into it. And obviously the NBA playoffs are still going on and continue to be the big headline out there. And we start because the conference semis are going to end by this weekend. Some series could end tonight. But by next week, by the time we do our next episode, we will know the final four teams contending for the NBA championship. And so just going series by series, as we always do, we start with the 1-4 in the East, the Heat and the Sixers. Surprisingly, it got competitive again. I was way off in thinking that this could be a sweep just because I didn't really know about the injury status of uh, Joel Embiid. I didn't know if he was going to be back um, or if he wasn't going to be back, how healthy he was going to be. But all of a sudden, you know, two games in Philly and all of a sudden, bam, 2-2. But then a few nights ago, Miami once again showed why it's been an absolute dominant series uh, by the Heat early on. And really, I want to zone in on that game five. Because honestly, like, the story is around, you know, the effort. You know, what the heck was the effort from Philly in game five. I mean, they just looked completely uninvested. They were down by as much as 37 at one point in a game five playoff game that was tied at 2-2. That doesn't make any sense. They only shot 36.5% from the field, 28% from three. And not only that, take take the numbers and the statistics and the analytics out of it, but just watch on the court when you watch those highlights. I mean, look at James Harden, how like uninvolved he is in standing around. You know, you see him drive to the basket. He gets stolen. And what does he do for the next like three seconds? He just puts his hands up and is just like, damn it. And he's just uh, standing around. It doesn't make any sense. And then on the defensive end, he's just letting guys shoot threes. He's complaining about calls and turnovers. I mean, I'm not putting it all on James Harden because everyone else was completely uninvested. It just looked like the offense was not running at all. Um, Joel Embiid wasn't as effective as he normally is. And honestly, he's not even the dominating force when he came back from injury. So, you know, like it's still there, not just with the orbital fracture wearing the mask, but the concussion, uh, the torn ligament in his thumb. I mean, the last three games consecutively, He's got 18 points, 11 rebounds, 24 points, 11 rebounds, and 17 points, 5 rebounds. So ultimately, someone else for Philly has to have a good game because Joel Embiid is not the MVP candidate that he was in the regular season. So for Philly to have any kind of chance in this, someone else has to put up numbers. And we saw that uh, in game four when Harden had one good game. Um, I think he put up like 31 points or something like that, you know, reminiscing to his Houston days. But really, that's all you can get from Harden nowadays. You get one good game out of him, but he can't do 
any more than that. I mean, game five, he had 14 points on five of 13 shooting, including two of six from three, six rebounds and four assists. Now, it's crazy, but that's just what he's been averaging since his time in Philly. So, you know, you have to rely on other guys like Tyrese Maxey. Like, you're going to trust a second-year guy to put up monster numbers to replace Joel Embiid. You're going to trust Tobias Harris, who's much better as a third or fourth scoring option than a number one or a number two scoring option. Uh, Danny Green, who's pretty much over the hill, I would say. I mean, honestly, the way I see this series is that whichever team gets consistent scoring from their role players is going to win this series. And we've seen it, how well the role players play at home when you look at the series shifting from Miami to Philadelphia. But this is more on the Heat side of things because I ultimately believe that the Heat are going to come out of this series. They could do it tonight when they play game six, or they could do it Saturday when game seven happens back at home. But they are going to get out of this. And why? Because I just see them dominating the paint. You know, outside of uh, outside of Kyle Lowry, there's still tons of weapons, which I continue to say week after week after week for this Heat team. But specifically when you look at what they did in the paint, they outscored them in game five, 56 to 36 in the paint. They out-rebounded them 46 to 36, and they scored 23 points off 16 Philadelphia turnovers. So this is all without their uh, big prize in the free agent market, Kyle Lowry. That means Jimmy Butler, Max Struess, I think had 19 points in the game. And then you still get double digits off the bench from Tyler Hero and Victor Oladipo. But I look more at the centers, the bigs that the Heat have. I look at Bam Adebayo, uh, Dwayne Dedman, P.J. Tucker, um, just to name a few guys. I think for on Philadelphia's side of things, they're limited now. You've got a limited Joel Embiid who's not really working in the post as much as he has uh, in the past, you know, because he's got injuries. You've got kind of an old and washed up uh, DeAndre Jordan who's not the same guy that he used to be. And then you got no other size beside that. I know I think they were doing, uh, Doc Rivers was doing Reed. I forget his first name. Uh, I think it's Paul Reed or something like that. He was playing their small ball center, but he's only 6'9". And he doesn't really play any bigger than that. So I look at those bigs for the Heat versus the 76ers bigs, and I see a huge advantage on Miami's side of things. So I think by the time we get to the conference finals, Miami will be one of those teams and I keep saying it over and over and over you know every time we got to talk about the heat how continuously they get overlooked and even in this in in the second round you know people want to talk more about how competitive the Celtics and Bucks are or what Philadelphia is not doing you know let's talk about the heat and how well they are as a team you know Obviously, if it was the Celtics who came out over the box, I'm not rooting for the Heat. But I just want more people to pay attention to how well Miami is playing. And this is no fluke. It's no fluke that the Heat are doing well. They had one bad year last year, but they've got all the right pieces to make a run possibly for the 2022 championship. But speaking of Celtics and Bucks, I think overall it has been the most compelling series so far in the NBA playoffs, I take out anything in the West, anything else in the East, these two, it's where it's at. You could put these two in the Eastern Conference Finals. That's how stacked this is. And now heading into game six tomorrow night, Friday night, with the Bucks possibly closing it out at home three to two. And we'll get deep and deep into the Celtic side of things when we get into Let's Get Local. But for this segment, I want to talk about Milwaukee. I think Milwaukee had a Big fourth quarter comeback in game five. They were down by as much as 14. They got a couple of lucky bounces in the last few possessions, you know, with Giannis missing the free throw, Bobby Portis, right place, right time. And then Drew Holiday just playing well defensively, I thought did really well. Um, But overall for the game, you know, I thought the Celtics were the better team overall in that game. And it took one good quarter from the Bucs. They made their shots when they need to, especially from three. They shot the three much better than they have all series long. They were 13 of 29, excuse me, 13 of 29, 45% from three. You look at what Giannis did 
Uh, he finally found a way around Al Horford. Just looking at the at the game, I watched it from uh, from start to finish. That matchup, I think Giannis maybe found a, a little something that can get him around Al Horford because everyone's talking about oh Horford played uh, has been playing great defensively on Giannis, and he has. But you can't hold him down for so much longer. I mean, this is a guy who put up forty points in a do or die game five, 16 and 27 for the field, 11 rebounds, but seven turnovers. So it's really 50, 50. When you look at the matchup between Antetokounmpo and Al Horford, Giannis has the step on the drive. You know, when he's driving to the basket, he has the step. It's when he's going from side to side, Horford's got some really good active hands that we've seen a bunch of strips uh, from the ball. But we've seen whenever Giannis gets that step on Horford, he's going right to the basket. And without Robert Williams for the Celtics uh, in the lineup, there's no one to really challenge him at the rim. We've seen him slowly get better against Grant Williams. And as I said, he's got the quickness around Horford. Um, So I think Giannis, it's still something to watch for because he did have seven turnovers in the game. But I think for when it came down to it the most, you know, he made that huge three from the top of the key that rattled in in the fourth quarter. Um, and then I, I just think Giannis is too hard to stop for a long period of time. It's very hard. The Celtics are going to have to do a better job defensively. But I don't really look at Giannis as winning that game for Milwaukee. I look at Drew Holiday, as I mentioned. I give him credit for a clutch, clutch performance in game five. I mean, 24 points. He put on the board, including, I think he scored nine in the first quarter. Um, He also put in eight rebounds and eight assists, but everyone's looking at those three huge defensive stops that he had, you know, when the clock was running down, he blocks Marcus smart. And then at the same time, he throws the ball off smart to keep it uh, Milwaukee ball. And then as the Celtics were driving, he takes the ball away from smart again to seal the game and win it by three. I, I give full credit to Drew Holiday for playing as well as he did in game five. Um, But if I'm on the Boston side of things, I look at this game as this was a must win that was there for the taking. You had it like in your sights and you could argue that Boston has been the better and more consistent team throughout the series. You know, you take away game one when they were totally outmatched. Game three, they were half a second away. Uh, if Horford had some more time to tip it in, you look at uh, this game, game five, they were up 14. And if they just played better offensively, they could have won the game uh, and not let Milwaukee back into things. So you could uh, argue that. And I think Boston, if they lose this series and they lose uh, one of the next two games, um, they're going to kick themselves for this game five because it was there for the taking. It was there in reach. I still would favor the Celtics to come out of this series um, just because, you know, they have not played to their highest potential and they've given a lot of games away. You know, you look at the games they've lost, they've been ultra competitive. They've made comebacks. They've had big leads. You know, if they just put it all together for a good 44 minutes and play much better in the fourth quarter, then this is a team I think can get out of it. But whoever comes out of this series, I think is going to go, to the NBA Finals, and I would even favor them in in the NBA Finals, um, seeing how the Western Conference has played. So I think right now my favorites would be either the Celtics or the Bucks, whoever comes out of this series, uh, to not only represent the East, but possibly win it all. But uh, speaking of the West, let's get to their series and talk about the 1-4 between Phoenix and Dallas. Another game and another series that could be clinched tonight before the episode even comes out. The Suns now up 3-2 on the Mavs. Um, just looking at the series, I think it's more about the Suns um, or others beating themselves uh, in the games in Dallas in games three and four. And when I say others, I'm talking about the officials. I mean, how ridiculous were those officials in game four when CP3 fouled out? He had more uh, fouls than points. And I would say about three or four of those calls were absolutely ridiculous, which by the way, just side note, the officials have been horrible in this series. Absolutely horrible. They're slowing down the pace of the game with a bunch of re- uh, reviews. Um, in that game three, Marcus Smart should have had a foul, uh, three shots instead of two. And then obviously 
the game four where Chris Paul fouled out. They've really got to get their head screwed on right. Um, but just back to the play on the court for Phoenix. Um, I, I don't really, I didn't really see anyone take over the game um, in Dallas, like we saw in game five, you know, I didn't see Devin Booker or DeAndre Ayton kind of assert themselves. And then obviously Chris Paul didn't get the chance because he fouled out. Um, but they did write the ship when the series went back to Phoenix. Booker put in 28 points in that game five. And then just again, back to Paul, he just finds so many different ways to impact the game. He is ultimately the point God. He only had seven points, but 10 assists. Um, and really all of it just came in the second half. I mean, the Suns outscored Dallas 61 to 34, especially in the third quarter, they outscored them 33 to 14. And then they've just been dominating the paint. Like I said, last week, they've been dominating all series long. Um, like in game five, they outscored them 44 to 24. And what's interesting in my eyes about the Suns team is how Monty Williams is using his backups, specifically the backup centers. You know, you've got two different centers for two different roles, uh, Bismack, Biombo, and JaVale McGee. If Phoenix is looking for any kind of scoring or any kind of rebounding, you're going to Biombo because we've seen how well he's played against uh, all the Dallas centers like Dwight Powell or Maxi Kleba or Davis Pertons. We've seen how well he does. For defense, if you need stops, you go to JaVale McGee, a guy who's 7-1 and is a rim protector. Um, that's just the different roles that uh, Monty Williams has had. He didn't really go to McGee as much in uh, Game 5. He went more to Biombo. And I think for, for Monty Williams, he's just playing the hot hand. I mean, he is the coach of the year. He already got that award. Um, so, you know, I, tr I trust Monty Williams to make the right decisions. Um, and I think ultimately Phoenix is going to come out of this series. But if the Mavericks want to come out of this series, the scoring has got to spread out other than Luka Doncic. Okay, we know what Luka can do. Um, you look at those both home games, you had at least five guys scoring in double figures um, in both of those home games. But you look at game, uh, game five, Luka had 28, Jalen Brunson had 21, Davis Bertans had 10. No one else was in the double digits. So, you know, I look at a guy like Reggie Bullock or Dorian Finney-Smith, who's a very, who's a, who are catch and shoot players from three. Um, they'll probably shoot better at home, you know, compared to on the road just because that's what role players do. Um, and that, that's kind of what I'm seeing from game six. If those guys shoot as well, and we just see more consistent scoring throughout the Dallas lineup, then the Mavericks can have a chance. But ultimately, I do like Phoenix uh, to come out of this one. And I even think they can take the win uh, tonight. I think they can end it uh, tonight. We'll see what happens. I think it's going to be a very entertaining game, though, nonetheless. And then the final series, obviously, is Warriors Grizzlies. Obviously, another big development. It started with, you know, some heated moments with Dylan Brooks, the flagrant foul on Gary Payton. Now John Morant is going to be doubtful for the rest of the playoffs. He's definitely out of this series against Golden State. But that didn't matter to, to the Grizzlies last night in game five. Total blowout victory by Memphis on their home court. They led by 55 at one point. 55 against the team that has Steph Curry, the best shooter in the world. Clay Thompson, Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, weapons galore for the Golden State Warriors, and they beat them by 37, but led by 55 at one point. 55. And it's just shocking looking at the numbers, how well Memphis has done without Morant on the court. I think I saw the numbers. He was 21 and six. They were 21 and six without an MVP candidate and maybe one of the best young players in the league in John Morant. That's ridiculous, ridiculous what the Grizzlies have done. I mean, just reading off the numbers, they shot 47.5% from the field. They shot 18 of 41 from three, 18 to four, the offensive rebounds, 29 points off 22 Golden State turnovers, and they just dominated the paint 50 to 36. Now, I mean, you could go back to game four as well, um, simply for the fact that, Memphis had it. This could be 3-2 Memphis, but they just couldn't come up with the timely baskets. Um, and that's sort of what I see when it gets like to close games because it's not going to be a 55-point lead or a 30-point blowout. 
at one point for the rest of the series, you know that the Warriors are going to respond. We know that for a fact because the offense was nowhere near where they usually are. Curry had 14 points. Clay Thompson had 19 points. Jordan Poole shot one of six from the field. Draymond Green had five turnovers. So that's that's ultimately, I see Golden State cleaning it up. I think they can bounce back and they can win this game. Because, I mean, you just limit those turnovers. 22 Golden State turnovers. And they were just trying to do too much, I think. The one advantage I do see Memphis having is in the paint, similar to the Heat and the Sixers. I would trust... Uh, the size of Memphis with Steven Adams, Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, some of those guys over guys like Kevon Looney or Draymond Green, who is the death lineup uh, center. I, I, trust, um, I trust Memphis on that side of things. I think I, I'm going to favor Golden State still, just as I see that offense turning it around. You know, Steph Curry isn't going to have a poor shooting uh, stretch for you know as many as three games clay thompson will shoot better um and draymond green you know he, he's smart enough to look at himself in the mirror and realize i created most of those turnovers so i gotta turn things around so i'm still gonna favor golden state you know by the time next week rolls around my predictions are that the heat will play the celtics and the suns will play the warriors that's what i think but it has been so exciting this nba postseason that all predictions and expectations can be thrown out the window and we can just enjoy what has been an incredible NBA postseason. NBA, the NHL is also in the midst of their playoff run. The race to the Stanley Cup is going to get tighter and tighter as the second round is almost here. We got a couple of game sixes tonight. We had a couple of game fives last night. But again, like the NBA, we will know the next series of matchups by the time we get to a new episode next week. And so far, we have only had one series, one series come to an end. And that was an easy sweep from the Colorado Avalanche over the Nashville Predators. And I'm not going to take too much time in it because I thought, you know, right from the jump that the Avalanche were not going to have a problem with the Preds. And, you know, they outscored them 21 to nine in the series. The four games that Colorado won seven to two, two to one in overtime, seven to three and five to three. And, Really, in that series, I just look at the special teams. The Avalanche were just so dominant on the power play, 44% success rate. Um, Avalanche, you know, they're, I would say they're in the clear now because they got the sweep. Every other series is going at least six. You know, this is, this is beneficiary to Colorado to get so much rest uh, before their next series. But let's talk about the series that are still going on. We start obviously with the 1-4 between the Panthers and the Capitals. That's been a lot closer than I expected between these two. And now after last night, Florida up 3-2 to two on the Caps after five unanswered goals um, starting after that first period. I think the second period was huge for the Panthers. And I think these two teams are very evenly matched. I think Washington is a good postseason team, maybe not uh, a regular season team, but you know, they have postseason success. They have a lot of experience. Um, but for Florida, the, the difference I see, though, is in the goaltending situation. You know, I would trust Sergei Bobrovsky more than Ilya Samsonov just because, again, you go to experience. You know, you know, I know, at least from personal standpoint, watching Bobrovsky, how successful he's been uh, in his NHL career. So I think that's what it really comes down to. And I ultimately see Florida coming out of this series. You know, I'm, I'm still going to ride with that. I know a lot of people want to ride the Caps because um, of all the experience they have with Alex Ovechkin, uh, TJ Brody, you know, uh, those guys. Um, I, I like Florida. I like Florida coming out of this series just because they're so evenly matched, but they've got the home ice. And, you know, I think more importantly in this, in this postseason, home ice means a lot. Um, but that's kind of 
you know, the E-Series that's been a little under the radar, you know, everyone's looking more at uh, the Penguins and the Rangers. I know me in particular, it's one of the more series I'm paying the close attention to. Um, I thought it was going to be a close series after that triple overtime game in game one, but it's turned into a Penguins blowout, although New York did survive last night to make it three to two and get their uh, home ice back. Um, I think you can see uh, effects from that game one triple overtime. Obviously, the effects are is that the third string goalie for Pittsburgh, who is the hero, uh, Domingue, is still in net as compared to uh, Casey DeSmith, who is the, the second stringer. Um, but the effects that you're seeing is uh, with Igor Shesterkin. I mean, Shesterkin is not the same goalie that we saw in the regular season. This was a guy who uh, very late last night, early today, was named an MVP finalist. An MVP finalist is a goalie. And when you see his numbers in the postseason as compared to the regular season, you're thinking, what the heck happened to this guy? This is a guy in the regular season who was tops in the NHL in goals against average at just over two goals a game and had a 935 save percentage, which both were best among in the NHL for goaltenders. And he had a 36 and 13 record in 53 regular season games. Now in the postseason, in these first five games, his goals against average is 399, 3.99, and his save percentage is 905. I have no idea what has caused this turnaround other than the simple fact of he played all minutes. He didn't sit for a second in that triple overtime win. He played the full, um, just trying to do the math real quick. I think it was like over 90 minutes or something like that. Um, And he made 79 saves. Um, So I think for Shesterkin, it's, it's going to be all about can New York score with Pittsburgh. I think that's going to be the difference maker because Shesterkin's not going to be the same guy. He's not going to be the same guy. I mean, he got pulled, I think, two or three times already in this series. Um, I think the number was in his last six periods, he's given up 13 goals. Let me say that again. 13 goals given up in the last six periods. Not six games, six periods so this is something that obviously the rangers have to look and realize that he's going to be on a very short leash for the rest of uh the the series you know if they can survive if pittsburgh goes down uh goes up to nothing i should say i say you yank it right then and there or even one nothing to a point um that's what i see on pittsburgh side of things um you know the the other development is that city crosby is hurt now he's left the game Uh, He left the game last night. You know, uh, people are describing it as an upper body injury. You know, that offense takes a huge hit. So I think this is the Rangers' prime opportunity, if Crosby can't play, to get out there and steal the series. That's what I think it's got to be. It's got to be the Rangers capitalizing on this. But I think the way Shesterkin is playing, I'd favor Pittsburgh. You know, I'd favor the Penguins more to close this out. Because, I mean, come on. 3-1 3-1 series lead. I know a lot of people have blown it. You know, I will not credit the Rangers if they do um, lose this game. Or um, if they lose this series, I will say that um, they blew it. I will just say they blew it right then and there. Um, but the other compelling series in the East, we got the Leafs and the Lightning. Now, scoring has been a premium in that series. Now with uh, the Leafs up 3-2. to two, And you'd say, oh, 3-2, to two, Toronto should win this series. But look at their postseason history. Again, this is a team that hasn't won a series since 2004. They blew a 3-1 lead to the Canadians last year, and the Canadians just earned the first pick in next year's NHL draft, meaning they were the worst team in the league. Um, But the the headline I see out of this series has been penalties. Penalties has been the headliner. I mean, these these teams among playoff teams are one and two in uh, penalty minutes. Toronto's got 122. Tampa Bay's got 103. And so I don't really... Not necessarily who has more power play goals. I see whoever has more power play chances are are usually going to win this game. And I think win uh, win the series, you know. I know Toronto has a lot of uh, penalty minutes right now, but um, a lot of that was attributed to game one, how uh, heated that was, including the 
the 10 minute major. Um, but I just see whoever has more chances because even if you don't score on the power play, you're still establishing a lot of zone time on the offense. So you've got the other team on their heels. So as much as I love Tampa Bay just for their championship experience um, and how well they are being the two-time defending champs, I think the Leafs somehow, some way, they're going to find a way to win this series. I think more so because game seven will be on their home ice. And we know how rowdy Canadian uh, fans are up there, up North, you know, for any of their playoff teams. I think, I think this is the year Toronto does it. And if I'm wrong, then, you know, Toronto, I don't think are going to win another series or even the Stanley cup for a very long time. If they once again, blow another uh, three, two seriously, but the final series in the Eastern conference are the hurricanes and the Bruins. And this is similar to Toronto and Tampa Bay power plays are a huge factor, but it's been a home team dominant kind of series. You had Carolina dominate the first two games on their home ice. Then Boston came out and dominated the next two games on their ice. Carolina went back to game five. They dominated five, one. Now you've got game six tonight on the garden ice. I don't know what to say other than I think if the series goes the exact same way it was Carolina um, should win this series, but I, I did say last week that the Bruins just looked kind of outmatched. I mean, this was a total 360, you know, when the series shifted to Boston, you know, and then it did another 360 once it went back to Carolina. But again, special teams are setting the tempo. And more so, I look at Carolina's side of things and then just see that they're getting more high percentage shots. You know, when you look at the numbers, the Bruins have taken 14 more shots than the Hurricanes, but their shot. Uh, percentage is 7.9 Carolina's is 12.7 so Carolina are getting better shots you know it's not necessarily that they're just getting shots they're getting better shots they're getting them off of a bunch of passes I think this is a really good passing team they're attacking the net they're capitalizing off the Bruins turnovers extremely well and then they've got a great backup in Auntie Ranta who's been performing well um while Freddie Anderson, who's been the star goaltender for the Hurricanes for a couple of years now, has been sitting on the sidelines uh, due to injury. So I ultimately think that Carolina is going to come out of this series. I wouldn't put it uh, past anyone if the Bruins won this series because they have more of the championship experience. You know, when you look at their roster, Patrice Bergeron, Brad Marchand, you know, they have more playoff experience as compared to this uh, Carolina team. Um, so I think it is, it is a flip of the coin, but my side of the coin would tell me that the hurricanes will win the series just because the way the series is going on home ice, you know, if Bruins win game six, hurricanes win game seven, that's all it is. You know, there's no simple logic other than the fact that the home team just plays better. (laughs) That's really all I can give you. I'm not an expert in the NHL, but that's all I can tell you is that you know, in that series, the home team will win, you know, every single game. So give me the Hurricanes on that one. Shifting over, though, to the Western Conference, the Flames and the Stars, they continue to go back and forth. It's been a really low-scoring series um, now with Calgary up 3-2 after last night's 3-1 win. Um, I think the the difference in that series is the Flames. Um, the Flames have some great defensive pairs out there, and just everyone they're putting on the ice on the defensive category I mean, no one was a negative plus minus except for Noah Hannafin, uh, who was a minus one in game five. So I think that's the big difference for Calgary's side of things. I like Dallas's fight. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if this does go seven games, but I just look at the response and uh, the late game play from Calgary. Um, and I and I like the Flames to come out of it. You know, I, I hate to do it against the Dallas Stars, um, but... I like Calgary to come out of this one just because, you know, after game five, they got all three goals in the third period uh, when they were down two to one. I I think Calgary just has the momentum. I think they have the momentum after that game, especially the way they were able to come back all in one period. Um, But between the blues and the wild, though, it was a completely different story. The blues are now one win away from knocking out the wild. Um, And the way I see St. Louis, the way they've been playing, they've been overcoming their slow starts. And that's what 
hurt them early on in the series. Now, since the uh, series have shifted home, they're playing much, much better. So far in the first period of the series, they've been outscored eight to four. When you look at the second and the third period, since game three, they have outscored Minnesota nine to four in both the second and the third periods in game three. I mean, look at game five. Vladimir Tarasenko got his hat trick all in the third period. You know, I would favor St. Louis in this one just because it's all about keeping Minnesota close. And we saw when it was game two. I mean, obviously, they had the shutout win in game four, uh, game one, I should say, four to nothing. Um, But when you look at game two and game three, which they lost, they let it get away from them early on. You know, since then, they've been keeping it close. It's been, you know, two to one or one to one or scoreless. It's been those kind of close games. And that's the difference for St. Louis is just keeping it within striking distance. And I think that's why um, I'd favor the Blues to come out of this series over the Minnesota Wild. But then the final series of the playoffs is the Kings and the Oilers. I'm very surprised to see LA up three to two on Edmonton right now. I mean, when you look at the series, the Oilers have been in every game except for that uh, 4-0 shutout loss they had in game four. Um, But I think the difference uh, is the Kings strategy of just wearing them out. You look at the numbers, LA has taken 200 shots so far. That's second in the postseason. And why are they doing that? Because they're wearing out the Edmonton goaltender, 40-year-old Mike Smith. He has been struggling recently in these last two games. He's given up nine goals uh, in these last two games. You do the math, uh, in those first three games, it was a total of six. So I think what L.A., you know, they do have the advantage, I think, in the neutral zone, just watching them play, and then just wearing out Mike Smith so they can really take advantage of him in the third period, I think, is the big difference. And that's why I think... Um, that, that's why I think LA surprisingly can come out on top of this. You know, I think the Oilers have a good offense and I know they've been in basically every single game. I know game five, they lost, uh, only four to three, but I just think the strategy for LA of just wearing down Mike Smith at 40 years old, you know, you do the math. Anyone at 40 years old is going to slow down after consecutive games where you're playing every other day. You know, that that's just what I see in this series. I like LA to come out of it. I think that's going to be an upset. I think the Kings will beat the Oilers uh, in this series. But again, similar to the NBA, the action in the NHL playoffs has been incredible. And I'm looking forward to what happens next on the race to the Stanley Cup. Last week, we took a little break from our quick hit segments just because we had three big events take place. Obviously, both the NBA, NHL playoffs, and then the NFL draft. But we are back, and we've got a bunch of other headlines to talk about. So let's dive into this week's edition of Quick Hits. And we start in baseball and talk about the LA Angels. How about the Angels? being in first place in the American League West with a half game up on the Houston Astros. Obviously, the headline last uh, this past week was the rookie left-hander for the Angels, Reed Detmers, throwing a no-hitter against the Tampa Bay Rays on Tuesday night. Which, by the way, why does everyone no-hit the Tampa Bay Rays? For a team that's as good as they are in Tampa, they seem like they get no-hit the most. I, I just don't get it. I don't get it. But back to Detmers. 108 pitches. Only 108 one walk and two strikeouts. So I think, well, you give the pitcher credit, you got to give the fielders uh, a bunch of credit as well. Because the fact of uh, one walk and two strikeouts means um, you didn't really pitch that dominant. Obviously, the, the you have to give credit to the pitcher, but this is more of like a 70-30 kind of thing. I give 30% of credit to the fielders because obviously the they wouldn't be able to make those plays um, without pitches being the right spot and hitters just not doing anything with him but the rookie is the youngest with a no-no since Anibal Sanchez for the Marlins in 2006 but again I tie this all back to how well the Angels have played to start the first month and a half of the season and the the problem I saw was that they just finally have some controlled pitching now we know that Mike Trout is back he's healthy and he's back to Mike Trout ways 
uh, as an early MVP candidate, uh, hitting 337, nine home runs, 19 RBIs. The team average is fifth in the majors with team, uh, 251, and they are tops in the league in home runs and RBIs. But the pitching is the big story for me. Not only do you have this kid Detmers, but you got Shohei Otani, the two-way masterpiece. You got Thor, Noah Syndergaard, Patrick Sandoval. They're all in the rotation. They've been pitching well. You got Rossiel Iglesias as your closer. Ryan Tapera, Aaron Loop in the bullpen. There's finally some controlled pitching in that uh, Angels pitching staff. So credit to the Angels. Do I think they can, you know, stay atop the division? Probably not. But I do think they will be chasing after the playoffs. So finally, the Angels are back in contention. Sticking with baseball, though, Christian Yelich making some news with the Milwaukee Brewers and making some history as he hit his third career cycle. There's only now six players, six players who have at least two or have at least three, excuse me, uh, career cycles. Christian Yelich is in that category right now, and Trey Turner was the most recent one. Um, And honestly, he's just been kind of overlooked since he won MVP in 2019. Now, granted, his numbers hasn't even been close to uh, when he hit in 2019. That MVP year, he hit 329, 44 homers, 97 RBIs. I think, you know, previous years he's hit like 250 or... uh, to uh, 60 or something like that. Um, So the numbers haven't been there, and and rightly so. He's been overlooked. But he is only 30 years old, so there is still some time to break that record. He could get that fourth career cycle. Um, But on the Brewers, uh, for the Brewers, he's still an important uh, part of that lineup. And I think if he continues to, uh, you know, if he can get, you know, relatively close to that MVP season that he had a few years ago, then the Brewers can be real true contenders for the World Series. So congrats to Christian Yelich for once again hitting for the cycle. Another day, another headline about Tom Brady. This one's a little more important, though, as Brady now has a career path for life after football after signing a 10-year, $375 million deal to be Fox's lead analyst for the NFL when his playing days are over. 375 million? Most players who are playing right now don't even get that number, okay? That's insane. That's insane, the numbers that Fox is giving him. And obviously Fox needs a boost because they lost their top uh, broadcasting team, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman to ESPN. So they needed something, or they needed someone uh, to get viewers you know, on their eyes and get people uh, appealing. But I don't really see. I didn't really see Tom Brady as a guy who could uh, go to the booth. Just because I, I wouldn't see him transition. Because he said over and over he values spending time with his family. Obviously, when he does retire, he's gonna get more time. But he will, you know, it, it's not gonna be a, a seven day a week kind of thing. I, it just it surprised me to see Tom Brady sign on to, uh, you know, be an analyst in the uh, broadcast booth. And maybe this is Fox thinking, you know, this is them capitalizing, thinking, huh, Brady was kind of, you know, indecisive uh, about returning to Tampa. Maybe he'll retire after this year. So they're thinking, you know, that maybe this year is the very last year that Tom Brady plays the NFL. And that's hard to say. It's hard to say because we don't know until we hear from the horse's mouth. But this is the reason I'm going after being a professional play-by-play because I want to get numbers like Tom Brady is when he gets to the booth. I want to be the one to sign a 10-year, $375 million deal, and hopefully I get there. We've got some big news in the world of golf, not only on the course, but off the course as well, as related to the possible new competition in the Saudi Golf League. Uh, The first news that's happening off the course is that the PGA Tour has denied releases for anyone wanting to compete in that first Saudi event. And we know some of the names are Phil Mickelson, Sergio Garcia, and Lee Westwood, who have requested a release. And we even heard from uh, current PGA pro Justin Thomas, who said, if you want to go, then go. You know, ultimately, you know, it's hard hard to say because I'm not a, a total expert in, like, you know, the Saudi golf league, you know, in particular. But all I know is they're offering a lot of money to these golfers. So 
I think the PGA kind of sees uh, the the LIV as, as competition. You know, if they're offering money like that, they might have to. You know, they don't they don't want to match that kind of money um, because we've seen we've seen how uh, historically they treated uh, their PGA pros. Um, so you know, maybe this is real competition that the PGA sees, and they're trying to do everything they can to uh, try and keep as many golfers as they can. Um, the that that's just what I see on uh, the PGA side of things. But on the course, the PGA Championship is set for next week in Oklahoma, and we have two notable competitors who are in the field for next week's tournament. It's Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Tiger, it'll be his second major since his leg injury. And we already heard from Tiger that he's preparing to play in the majors. He said he's gonna do a part-time schedule. He's not gonna, um, you know, play every single week or something like that. You know, I'm looking for Tiger to probably play a lot better. Cause I look, when you saw him play in the Masters, he played well that first day, but then when you got to day two, three and four, he really struggled. And I think now that he knows like how he feels after day two or day three. I think he's going to be a lot better. I think he can make the cut in the tournament, but I wouldn't expect him uh, to win the tournament. But the headline more is about Phil Mickelson because he hasn't played since he made his controversial comments. Uh, If you remember, he talked about the Saudi Golf League and talked about the Saudis in general. So I'm just curious if he does play and he says he's going to play, how are the players and the fans going to treat him? You know, are they going to like give him the cold shoulder? Are they going to throw him some booze on the first tee? I don't know what it's going to be. You know, I just want to see how receptive the PGA Tour in general is to Phil Mickelson if he does return to play. And then finally, in the NFL, the schedule release will come out tonight. By the time this episode is released, the full schedule week by week will be released. But there was a few games that were announced and there was one game I wanted to look at in particular. Maybe not a headliner game, but I really want to talk about the Cowboys going to Green Bay and playing the Packers in week 10. Why? Because it's Mike McCarthy's first game at Lambeau since he was fired from the Green Bay Packers. And I think similar to last year, the interaction between Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, all eyes are going to be Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy. How are they going to interact? Are they going to try and patch things up um, by the time this game gets played? Um, How are the fans going to um, treat Mike McCarthy? Are they going to give him the booze or are they going to cheer him? Because this is a guy who brought them a Super Bowl back in 2011 along with Aaron Rodgers. So, that that's the game I'm really noticing. I'll probably do more analysts analyzing when it comes when the full schedule comes out, and by the time we get to next week, um, what the schedule actually will be like. You know, who's got the best matchups, who's got the worst matchups. Obviously, um, you know, this is a game everyone's going to circle, and it's going to be a prime time game, no doubt about it. You know, whether it's like a four thirty or you know a Sunday night football or a Monday night football. I think all eyes, you know, similar to, you know, I, ju- I just look at it similar to Bucks Pats. Cowboys Packers are going to be the Bucks Pats from a year ago. And that is a wrap up on this week's edition of Quick Hits. are fans from the boston area this is your segment to shine it's time for our let's get local segment of the week and as i said at the top of the show it's not been very good i have not been feeling very good since last night and everyone knows about last night the fact that the celtics blew their chance to lead 3-2 and now they're down 3-2 heading into milwaukee friday night for game six and i think everyone's talking about that fourth quarter performance because this was a masterpiece, you know, or at least close to a masterpiece of how to play the Milwaukee Bucks for about three quarters for three quarters. They played great. They had a 14 point lead on them 
at one point. And then just overall, I look at it from coaching to players. Just, I was just not a fan of that fourth quarter performance. I thought they were just too conservative. You know, they were playing with the clock more than playing with them, uh, playing against the Bucks. I thought they were just, they were trying to slow things down and they, they just got slow to a point where it just didn't look like the Celtics that we uh, have known for the past couple of months. You know, this was a team that has to get a lot of ball movement going on. This is a team that has to continue to drive and kick, you know, and when they started to drive and kick, that was with like 10 seconds on the shot clock. And you can't even say it was, Oh, it was, uh, they started doing that when there was like five minutes left. No, they did that for the whole quarter. They just got away from their style of offense. There was too much isolation, not enough ball movement. You know, Jalen Brown didn't have enough minutes in the fourth quarter. He came in too late. And then obviously just some bad bounces, obviously, um, you know, the lack of size bit them in the butt, you know, without Robert Williams, you put Robert Williams uh, and Al Horford down on the blocks uh, with uh, those free throws. Then I would have said, you know, they probably get the ball, they hold on to it and they make some free throws. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart couldn't corral the rebound. Bobby Portis was right there. He banks it in and then, you know what what happened after that I, i'm not going to i'm not going to bash marcus smart too much because this is a guy you know everyone wants to bash him why is he taking that shot why is he taking that shot well this is a guy though that if you didn't have him on there on that roster then i don't even see the celtics in this series at all i i see them still at 18 and 21 so i'm not going to bash marcus smart too much saying like oh he shouldn't even be a part of it but it's just his decision-making in that moment is all I want to focus on. I mean, there was so much time left on the clock after the Bucks took that one-point lead that he drives in, he goes for the block. And I want to give credit to Drew Holiday for making the defensive play. Um, but the decision-making that Smart had in those last couple of seconds was very, very lacking. Um, you know, when you, when you go back to the rebound, I don't know, like there was just miscommunication with him and Brown on that rebound. You know, you know, it seemed like Brown knocked it out of smarts hands. Um, and then that last offensive possession, he went for the layup and holiday blocked it. You know, if it was me, if I was the coach, you know, I, I get why you're doing that. Cause you trust your defense to make a stop, but I would have taken more time off the clock and maybe get, a better shot out there, you know, maybe like a drive and kick or uh, something like that. But back to the, to the decision-making though, like with, with Marcus smart, you know, when you look at the options that are on the court, I, I think I would trust the ball more in Tatum's hands or Brown's hands, or even Horford's hands uh, to be completely honest. So, you know, that that's where I sort of am with smart on that play in the previous, you know, play after the Bucks made their free throws and made it a three point game. I don't fault um, the kind of play like that because I, I saw the intention of what was going on Horf, uh the inbound went to Horford, uh, give back to smart smart was on that left side. I know everyone's saying, oh, Tatum was wide open on that right side. Maybe that's where he was going. And obviously, you know, that's the that was the play design. I'm guessing what Ime Odoka was looking for. He was just saying, you know, Alan Marcus, give and go, and then go from there or something, something like that. So again, credit to holiday for that defensive play. Um, but I, I just look at decision-making particularly in that game and, you know, smart even admitted it, you know, that's a guy who you want. He said, we blew it. You know, we had our chance and that's, that's kind of what you want to see. And obviously it's going to, it's going to hurt for Celtics fans because like I said uh, earlier in the show, you know, this was a game that was in front of them. You could have taken a three, two series lead. Um, you were dominating for about uh, 35 minutes of that game. And then you let uh, Milwaukee come back in and win, but you could say it's deja vu from game four because Milwaukee did the exact same thing. They were up by like 11 late in the third. And then the Celtics came back in game four, Horford had a big game. They eventually won by 10. So it's kind of just like a tit for tat kind of thing. But now they're in must win scenario. And I, I do trust this Celtics team to rebound um, literally and figuratively. Um, 
I think I think it comes down to how well Robert Williams is on the floor because we've seen it when Brooke Lopez is on the floor, when Giannis is on the floor, and even Bobby, Bobby Portis from time to time, which I will add about Portis's go-ahead. The refs did miss a travel. You know, I, I definitely thought he traveled out there, um, but obviously in late-game scenarios, they're not going to call it. Um, just, again, it comes down to how well can the Celtics rebound? Because even Ime said, like, you know, offensive rebounds was the, the main thing. That was ultimately what it was. Um, so that, that's kind of what I see from the Celtics. I'm not giving up in – I'm not giving up whole hope, but I know that if the Celtics do lose this series, they are going to look back at this game, game five, and going to say that was our chance. Because I, the reason I'm like so passionate about it, because I think this is a championship caliber team. You know, I still hold on to the fact that out of this series between Boston and Milwaukee, one of them is going to the Eastern Conference Finals. Because I think this is a team on Boston's side of things, at least they can shut down Philly and they can shut down Miami, uh, both in a seven-game series. So that that's why I'm so passionate about this, because I think this this is one of the Celtics' better chances to get to the finals. Um, and if they just – if they bite themselves in the butt versus, like, Milwaukee just totally taking over a game. You know, if, if the Celtics played the same kind of offense they did earlier in the game and they gave up this 14-point lead – then it'd be another story. But the fact is they totally like changed their game plan. And, you know, I know these Celtics, they love sort of being the underdog back against the wall. So maybe it's for the better that the Celtics have their backs against the walls and they are in a must win scenario. Cause like this game five was must win, but it wasn't, you know, must win where if you lose, you're going to be eliminated, you know, like it is there. So you win game six, this is huge. And then game seven, I feel ultimately confident that the Celtics can do it on their home floor simply for that reason, because they are on their home floor. So we'll just see how the Celtics respond Friday night. I know all eyes are going to be glued to Milwaukee, Wisconsin uh, to see if the Celtics can stave off elimination. But a team that does need to stave off elimination are the Bruins. And that happens tonight when they play the Carolina hurricanes and who knows by the time this episode is out, they might've already be eliminated. You know, I already said that this is basically, you know, a home, a home team victory because home teams have played phenomenally well in this, uh, in this series. I don't have the exact numbers, but I, I just can't explain why these teams have such different performances on the road versus at home. I mean, I can tell you an issue is the special teams when they play on the road. When you look at game five, they were 0 of 3 on the power play, 2 of 5 on the penalty kill. I know the numbers say they were 3 of 5, but that Seth Jarvis one was like, you know, a second or two after it ended. So you could still kind of count it as um, being on the penalty kill. And then um, I, I just don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I think, you know, part of it is uh, Jeremy Swayman. He's got some playoff inexperience. Uh, in terms of playing on the road, you know, that's part of it, but Hey, Bruce Cassie has said, you can't falter everything on him. Um, and then I just think, I, I think the hurricanes just play so much better when they're at home. You know, I, I think part of it is that. So I do think that the Bruins can win this series. Um, um, I, I really see, I, I see the Bruins winning game six at, on their home ice um, just because the energy from the garden is going to be rocking. And we know, that the Bruins play so much better at home just because of the way the series has went. Um, but game seven is going to be really, really hard for them to win. I think it's going to be really hard if the series continues like this. So that's, that's just a short thing on the Bruins. You know, it's, it's just same old, same old, like I talked about last week, you know, I did say that they were totally out of it and I thought they'd get swept, but that was before a game was even played at TD garden in Boston. Now things are different. I still kind of hold certain to the fact that Carolina wins, but really just for another side of things, just because, you know, home teams are playing better and Carolina obviously has the home ice, you know, if it gets to a game seven. So that's kind of what I see, you know, sorry, Bruins fans, but I don't really think this is a team that can get out of this series and uh, can win a game on the road or at least uh, in Carolina. You know, that's a hard thing for me to see, but uh, let's talk. I was going to talk about the Red Sox really quick, but we did get news earlier in the morning. I just want to talk about that real quick. The Pats trading Jared Stidham to the 
Raiders for a couple of draft picks. I kind of saw this coming after drafting Bailey Zappi. You know, that's your third string quarterback now. You know, hopefully he will be your backup at one point, you know, because Brian Hoyer ain't going to stay around too much longer. Mac Jones is obviously still the guy. Um, and then hopefully Zappi develops into a good third stringer, you know, maybe a practice squad kind of guy. Um, but again, we'll probably talk about the Patriots next week when the schedule comes out. We'll talk about the big games that they've got there. Um, but let's talk about the Red Sox uh, who are still playing and they still can't get any consistency from anybody. They're sitting at 11 and 20 right now. And obviously last night was a killer. It's, it's like a good news, bad news things. The good news was that Trevor Story finally got his first home run as a member of the Red Sox. It took a month and a half and he finally got it. After striking out 8,000 times, he finally uh, got someone to, uh, he finally, he finally got a pitch to hit and hit it over the fence. That's the good news. The bad news was you didn't score any more than that. You had it 3-3. Bottom nine, Ryan Brazier's in, boom, walk-off home run to uh, Orlando Arcia. You know, I, I do want to give credit to the Braves because they are the defending champs, but gosh, this bullpen can't get anything right. They can't get anything right. And it would be totally different if the offense was playing better. You know, if they had scored more runs, then you wouldn't have to pressure the bullpen so much. But just when it comes down to holding on to runs or saving runs, this team can't do it. This bullpen cannot do it. And I said it week after week after week is that this bullpen has to be one of the weakest ones in the MLB. And I know everyone's saying, oh, but, you know, most players play really well. Okay, but when you need your bullpen to play the best it can be, they can't do it. They can't play when you absolutely need them to play. They can't pitch well at the most important moments. You know, even in a nine to four game, like they did, like they had on a Tuesday night against the Braves, you know, you, you were biting your nails if you were a Red Sox fan, because if the Red Sox didn't get any runs in that ninth inning, then this bullpen could have easily just thrown it away, easily thrown it away. And, you know, obviously the momentum killer was when the bases were loaded and Kevin Ploiecki struck out on an absolutely horrible call. And uh, he got tossed for arguing. And Alex Cora got ejected. Um, which, by the way, the umpires have been garbage in the MLB this year in terms of ejections. I mean, look at the Madison Bumgarner ejection, um, the game between the Blue Jays and the Yankees the other night, you know, some wrongful ejections there. But I don't know what the Sox team has to do to turn around their offense. Because that I just see, you know, the bullpen is bad, but we knew that coming in. We didn't know how bad the lineup was going to be. We didn't know they were going to be this bad. And, you know, I, I was producing uh, late night with KJ Carson on WBEI, and we were both agreeing that, you know, your top two hitters are uh, Xander Bogarts and Rafael Devers, and they're basically on contract years. Bogarts has already, you know, possibly said that he's done. Devers is looking for a $300 million extension, and they're the only two players that seem to be playing well. So if you're front office, you got to start paying those guys, because otherwise your offense is going to be total garbage if Trevor Story can't hit the way he is. If J.D. Martinez, he doesn't have a few more years, um, you know, he's going to be gone in the next couple of years. Where's your foundation? Bogart's endeavors are your foundation. The fact that Bloom doesn't dedicate the entire, his entire salary to these two guys is absolutely ridiculous. You know, this is not Tampa Bay where he was the general manager. This is Boston. This is a high market team that expects victory. So you can't be all lovey-dovey with your money and try to – get all your players from the bargain bin you gotta spend where you know you can that's just that's the front office thing i have for the problem in that you know maybe the hitting coach has to be fired in the uh immediate future in the present term i it, it's frustrating it's frustrating in the city of boston to see the celtics blow a game the bruins to you know be on the verge of elimination the red sox playing as bad as they are Hopefully these teams can turn it around or we can start seeing some more success from these Boston teams. at our LOL moment of the week. And this is a 
big time moment in terms of someone getting a big time award, but it's a presentation unlike any other. So this week's LOL moment of the week goes to Nikola Jokic, the now two time reigning MVP in the NBA. Now, what makes this an LOL was that this is a presentation unlike any other, as I mentioned. You know, we've seen guys um, get awards in their locker room. Uh, we saw, you know, uh, before the, the big awards ceremonies that um, it would be announced in the press, then they'd have a press conference. And then before the next game, the commissioner would award it to the player, you know, like they did uh, Derek Rose before a Chicago game or LeBron before a Miami game. This is something I've never seen before. The video shows on Inside the NBA on TNT, Nikola Jokic pulling up on a horse to his stable with some weird, I guess it's Serbian music. I'm not 100% sure what the music is, but it's it sounds like, you know, I hear an accordion in the background, which uh, Michelle Hart, one of my friends, will definitely love. Um, he comes, he's, ride, he's riding a horse, he takes off the helmet, he's hugging everybody, and then he gets the award and then after he gets it he conducts the interview with the inside the nba crew from his stable he's got a horse in the background just chilling out you know just doing his own thing while Jokic is talking about oh this is such a tremendous honor to be mvp second year in a row blah 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 i'm just <laughs> there is only one joker there's only one joker and it's nikola Jokic. the fact that he comes on a horse in serbia to accept his MVP award. And obviously it's a big time moment and it's going to mean, you know, serious stuff to him. Cause you know, he has a stable, obviously he raises horses, you know, that kind of thing. And his family was there, you know, giving him hugs and stuff like that. But I just think from, from across the pond here in America, that's just kind of funny to see that kind of entrance, you know, it's different coming into the locker room or maybe coming out of a car or something like that, or a limo. No. This guy comes on a horse like he's in chariots of fire, you know, galloping at five miles an hour. And he comes off and receives possibly the biggest award of his career for the second year in a row. So I, I, that was just, that was funny to me to see Jokic accept it in that kind of way. So Joker for accepting your MVP in the most unique way, I would say in sports history. You've landed yourself into this week's LOL moment of the week. So that wraps it up for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure, as always, you are following our other pages on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.